Well, good morning, guys. It's good to be with y'all again and good to be uh, sitting down here to record uh, another podcast this morning. And we are looking forward to to what we're going to talk about this morning, which is a continuation of what we were talking about last time, which is covenant theology and specifically talking all about the covenant of grace this morning. So as we look at uh, Marvin continuing what he was going to talk about last time, but we didn't have time to uh, to discuss that. Uh, all of these different chapters are going to focus on the covenant of grace. And just to sort of hit the rewind button and sort of zoom our focus out just in big picture, uh, we need to just understand, you know, when we're talking covenant theology, basically we're talking about uh, how we see God dealing with his people really throughout redemptive history. And, and what covenant theology is, is we see God really just condescending toward his people. And he does so by way of, of making covenants with them. And really one of the most important distinctions between our uh, Pado-Baptist brothers and, and ourselves, in other words, Presbyterians and a confessional Reformed Baptists, when it comes to covenant theology, really is how one views the covenant of grace. And uh, I've got my confession of faith here, the 1689 here, and I just want to read uh, just one of the paragraphs. It's chapter 7, paragraph 3 of the 1689. And, and here's how the new covenant is described. It says this, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is also by the grace of this covenant that all posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon these terms on which Adam stood in his state of intimacy. So, you know, as we, as we look at that, not only did a lot of our early confessional Baptists equate the promise of the gospel with the covenant of grace, but but what I've thought is interesting is they also connected the covenant of grace with the new covenant exclusively. So, so all, yeah. in other words, for me, it makes it simple because it just basically says all saints of all time have only been saved in one way, and that is by the blood of Jesus Christ. And of course, all who claim to be uh, a part of, you know, the Reformed tradition is able to just to say that and to proclaim it broadly. But but here's the thing, describing how this actually was accomplished, uh, that is something really altogether different, because many of the early Baptists connected the promise of the gospel with the covenant of grace and the covenant of grace with the new covenant. And so therefore, I think it's only Reformed Baptists who can consistently say that all of God's uh, saints of old have been saved in the exact same way that saints of today are saved. They're saved by faith in the promise of the gospel. And that promise we, we see all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And that promise, that Genesis 3.15 promise, what they call the, the Proto-Evangelion, that promise was progressively revealed through redemptive history to today, as our confession says, uh, it has those three words, by farther steps. And so uh, those in the Old Testament look past all of the uh, 
the types and the shadows uh, of the old covenant. They look past that and they were saved. And we today look back to the finished work of Christ. So, so in my mind, you know, by connecting these things, you know, Reformed Baptists, for example, when you look at Abraham, Reformed Baptists believe Abraham was saved not by the Abrahamic covenant, but by something outside of the Abrahamic covenant. He was saved by faith in the promises of God and would receive that uh, that justification, that alien righteousness from something outside of the Abrahamic covenant and not that specific covenant itself. It came from the new covenant by way of the covenant of grace. And uh, like Sam Renahan says, the Abraham covenant was subservient to that. So so when you think about Abraham, sure, yeah, he didn't have the clarity of the gospel that we have today. But regardless, I mean, he was looking beyond the types and shadows. He was looking beyond Canaan to, to better things. And I think it says that uh, in, in John, I think uh, around chapter six or seven or eight, I'm not exactly sure. But basically, just to boil it down, the Reformed Baptists would say that the New Covenant is different in substance than the Old Covenant. So unlike that required obedience and, and the potential curses of the, 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 the covenants of old that you see in the Old Testament, the New Covenant provides totally freely the things that it demands. And, and what does it demand? You know, we're talking a new heart. We're talking forgiveness of sins. And the thing about the new covenant is there's no threats of curses if 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 once if if we do not keep you know uh our end of the deal because it's a free covenant. So so there are no everything is given freely, and we don't see that in the other other covenants. So uh because I understand it, that's why Reformed Baptists have said that these are not uh, this is not the continuing covenant of grace. Basically, what they say in short order, in short form, is we have the the uh, the covenant of grace, which is a new covenant. We have that announced and revealed in all of the covenants of, of the Old Testament, but yet it is actually enacted and it is given and it is delivered in the new covenant. So, so with that being said, just sort of putting that out, setting the table. Uh, brothers, help us to understand this. Help us to walk through this as it relates to, uh, to to our brothers, our Presbyterians. And as we go through this, you know, we're going through through Joe Beakey's book. So a lot of the summarization is going to be of a Presbyterian nature. And we've got so many similarities there. I mean, it's, it's not, we, there's a total divergence. I mean, we see things in many ways very much the same, especially as you get down into the individual covenants. But on this one principle about the covenant of grace, is it is it do we see it in the Old Testament through different administrations, or do we only see it as the new covenant? That is the big question. So Marvin, brother, you want you want to just kick us off in this and help us to understand this? Sure. Yeah, we can almost go to chapter 32. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, but, um, <laughs> No, I will uh, try to work through this within the stricture of the times that we have, um, but I, I do think that is a good introduction. And it's at its core a, a complex topic as it relates to Joel Beakey, uh, from whom so far we have benefited so much and have agreed and with almost everything. And certainly there are a lot in these chapters that we will agree with as well. Uh, but I think... Uh, as we go, you'll begin to see, uh, you begin to see, particularly in the Abrahamic covenant, where 
our our ideas or our views may diverge some and uh, not to impugn motives to anyone because uh, we certainly wouldn't uh, but a lot of it goes to the very heart for instance of uh baptism of the baptism of infants how is that a valid new testament practice um, and we'll look at that and see that in relationship to uh, in relationship to the new covenant and uh, our Reformed Baptist roots. Uh, I would uh, well, I had a section from Pascal to know I was I was going to read. If I have time, I probably will. But I think he, I think he deals with this pretty well. But we'll we'll see what our time looks like. Uh, in. Uh, Beginning in 31, the diverse administration of God's covenant of grace, part one, he first of all introduces us here to the ancient covenants. Uh, and he talks about them in terms of, in a broad terms of uh, the relationships that matter most to us. That is the relationship between God and us, us being uh, humans, humanity, in the broader sense of those who are born into this planet, but more particularly as we see as results of sin in the fall ravaging the uh, ravaging the nations and ravaging uh, humans. Uh, we begin to see God's part in this as it is uh, consistently revealed to us, and I think that's the key. There is this is this is a uh, this is a, a covenant of revelation. There is on six eleven, I think, in the. Uh, second paragraph there in the italics. I, I think this is a good way, really, to get us started uh, with Vicky's understanding of it, and it's kind of going to be the model of the template through which we we go through the rest of the chapter. Uh, he says at the end of chapter two, he says every redemptive historical covenant is at its core the covenant of grace, uh, but dispenses God's grace through a temporary external administration that points typologically ahead to Christ. Uh, so I, I think that is, uh, I think that is a good broad uh, definition and a broad heading going ahead here. Uh, things to note here particularly is that uh, every covenant that God makes is at its core the covenant of grace, with perhaps the possible exception of the covenant of works, which we see enacted in the Proto-Evangelion as, as as uh, as Van said, or the or the first announcement of the gospel, uh, but Beaky's point here is that uh, is that in each of these covenants uh, we see the covenant we see the covenant of grace administered. So again, he would see the covenant of grace as overarching all the other covenants that uh, that all the that all the other covenants are in a sense an administration of the covenant of grace, although in a in a uh, shadowed or revealed way, but he does this by talking about the temper, the temporary external administration, and then the typological uh, relationship to Christ. So we'll we'll follow that in terms of our in terms of our approach to this as well. Uh, he says in the next uh, paragraph, if however we focus on the external administrations ordained for Abraham, Israel, and David. Uh, much of which foreshadow the spiritualities of Christ, then we must see that we that these are distinct historical covenants. Uh, he goes on then to uh, to describe this on six twelve. He says first, the redemptive historical covenants made prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ implemented temporary administrations of Christ of Christ's grace. 
Um, now, I think we, uh, if we read this very carefully, uh, we can, on the one hand, according to the Second London Confession, which which Van read, um, we can agree with him in this in this particular aspect is that uh, is that the covenant of grace uh, by promise is evident in every one in every one of these in every one of these covenants uh, prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think, however, that we might differ, as as Van noted there. Uh, in calling in calling all of this or subsuming all of this the covenant of grace uh, which is a thousand year project in looking forward to what we as reformed baptists would call in the no, in the new covenant the covenant of grace uh, i i think that what beaky does here is he looks at the temporary administrations he looks at the strictures and, and by the promises here he he looks at this twofold. The temporary administrations basically deal with uh, the uh, deal with the historical realities of this, and that is that even in the covenant with that even in the covenant with Abraham, or even let's go back even to the covenant with Noah that he has, uh, that there is obedience uh, that there is obedience required there. Uh, the covenant with Noah, of course, he says would not be a redemptive. Uh, a redemptive covenant in which we would think of the covenant of grace, although he does say, say that there certainly is grace in it. Uh, it is uh, related more to creation than it is to redemption. Uh, the, the covenant with Noah is one in which the, uh, in which the, uh, as God says in an anthropomorphic way, it says, it grieves me that I've made mankind. And he looks out upon the land and all he sees with the exception of Noah and his family, who would be elect or chosen by him, all he sees is corruption, uh, irredeemable, irredeemable corruption in in the mind of God. And so then he makes a covenant then with Noah uh, that if he will that if he will build the ark, uh, seal it up, and prepare it for the judgment that is to come, the great flood that is to come, uh, then he and his family will be saved. Uh, in first Pe- in First Peter three, I think it is. Um, uh, Peter makes a uh, uh, Peter makes a strong analogy between that and baptism, uh, in in, uh, in a sense not in, in, not in the strong sense here of of Noah's covenant, but in the sense there uh, that uh, uh, that the waters of baptism do as it does here do symbolize the judgment of God upon sin. Uh, and that's why uh, the particular way that we administer baptism, I think, not only is proper in our understanding of the New Testament, but it it it, it, it in terms of pictures, uh, it so well pictures uh, what it is uh, that is being submerged under the water. Uh, that even though we do not hold people long enough under the water and actually to take their life away, and I will remember as a teenager. By baptism, I, I have a I have a, a a mild phobia of water, and it felt like forever that I was going to come out of there, and that I might been, be going to meet the Lord. Uh, but, but we don't, but we don't do that. Uh, but it does, however, uh, symbolize for us a watery grave, uh, and that is that uh, in that watery grave that we signify or we confess to ourselves uh, that we are part of the unredeemed rebellious creation and thus in noah's day you see the same thing there in a very picturesque way as well as he as as he and his family are saved uh 
by the judgment of God upon uh, uh, upon the ark. And so it is also that as we are lowered into the watery grave, uh, signifying a death to our sins, uh, there again, we rise to walk in newness of life uh, in a picture of the of the of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, which is uh, our hope. And it's which the power by which, uh, well, Paul says explicitly, the power by which God raised Jesus from the dead is the same power by which he raises us from our spiritual death as well. Uh, so it is a powerful it is a powerful symbol in, in the covenant with Noah uh, and in its in his temple administration, it is, as he would say on 615, it is an administration of God's common grace to all mankind upon heaven and uh, until heaven and earth pass away. And that, again, is the sign of the rainbow in that the fact that uh, that the creation will never be destroyed in that way again. Now, it will be it will be destroyed and renewed uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. But the difference with that is in Noah's covenant uh, that whenever the whenever the floodwaters receded, Noah and his family uh, touched down on dry ground again. But we know from the geological record as we look around, uh, not only do they go back to and become the only inhabitants of the earth, uh, but they also come back to a uh, to an eerily different world. If we if we consider geology in the sense that uh, it is through the pressure of the rising and receding flood that many of the ge- many of the geological distinctions we see upon the earth, such as mountains and valleys and things like that, uh, would have been in evidence. We think whenever Noah and his family landed. So, uh, in a sense, then the land is scarred. Not only does a rainbow. Uh, serve as a sign of God's covenant, but there's a constant reminder in the creation itself, uh, as the land is scarred, as 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 uh, the forces of uh, below of the earth push the push the mountains above, and and the rivers flow, and and, and such as that. It's a reminder of the sin. It's a reminder of the sin upon them. He then goes to the uh, to the covenant with Abraham, which indeed is the the one that I think, uh, as Van introduced this, I think is the one that is of most interest to us because as uh as Beaky says uh on the top of 617 he says the covenant with abraham is the living root from which all those works grow um and that is uh the, in view of uh god's subsequent saving works uh that he does after having uh after having flooded the earth and having redeemed an elect uh group of noah and his family uh, we see those aspects here. Now, again, I, I, for the sake of time, I'm going to rush through this. Um, as we said last week, any one of these could stand by itself for an hour and a half if we had the time. Uh, but again, I think there's enough of the complexity of this that's unrolled through the various chapters that whatever I don't deal with here, I'm, I'm sure it will be dealt with in other chapters as well. Uh, Beaky in a section on the biblical expedition of the covenant of promise uh, talks about, uh, Paul teaches in Galatians that uh, the singular seed points particularly to one son of Abraham, that is to Jesus Christ, and collectively to those in union with him, both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and this we find in Galatians 3.16 and 28-29. And we also see this, by the way, in Acts 3 and in Peter's uh, sermon at Pentecost. Um <clears throat> 
He says, however, in another sense, all the Israelites are children of the covenant because they are Abraham's physical descendants. And, and I think this I think this is where the real distinction comes in, uh, is the fact that uh, some of uh, some, if, if not many of our Reformed Baptist brethren would see here the fact that, yeah, there is an Abrahamic covenant, uh, but that in a real sense, God has made two covenants with Abraham here. And, and we see this, I think, traced out through the other covenants as well. Because there is, in Genesis 15, there is the covenant of promise. This is the one where God unilaterally, uh, unilaterally, while Moses, is, I mean, excuse me, while Abraham is stepped back, uh, the animals are divided, uh, the smoke pots and so forth are in place there. Uh, and through the symbolic action of this, normally in, a, in an ancient Near Eastern covenant, uh, both parties would actually walk through the middle of the of the uh, of the of the uh, slaughtered animal there, uh, symbolic of the fact that the covenant here uh, in, uh, it, it is a covenant of it is a covenant of promise in the sense that uh, if we will both live up to this, then the conditions of the covenant will be enacted for us, something of mutual benefit to both. However, the dead animal walking there would signify also the fact that should we not keep this covenant, then this should be our rightful result, uh, as we see there, as we see there, the animal, uh, that maybe not physical death, but certainly the most extreme of penalties would, 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 would be incurred by disobedience to the covenant. We see in Genesis 15, however, that, that, uh, Abraham does not walk between the slaughtered parts, between the divided parts. Only God does, as God in his, in his uh, glorious essence, as, as he uh, is revealed in, in, the, in his divine essence in the cloud. He himself walks between those uh, as a sign that, uh, that regardless of Abraham's obedience or disobedience, his plans are eternal. His plans, uh, his plans for redemption through the promise given to Abraham are upon him and upon him completely. Uh, that is that though Abraham would fail and his, and his, and his sons and his, uh, his seed, uh, the, the, the seed, the, the physical descendants of Abraham would, would fail as time goes on. Uh, God will always remember his covenant and will always enact it in a way uh, that he has purposed to do that. Uh, now, in Genesis 17, however, we see there uh, where the covenant then, the same covenant is then expressed to us or exp uh, given to us in a different way there, uh, where it is given to us in the normal way of an ancient Near Eastern covenant. Uh, not that, Not in the institution of it, but in the keeping of it. In that sense, then, uh, God gives a promise to Abraham and his posterity that he will give them the very land upon uh, the very land of now what we know, the land of Canaan, uh, though it would take hundreds of years in order for that to come about. Uh, that was a physical promise that God had made uh, through several generations. And as such, then, the uh, uh, the uh, the obtaining and the keeping of that covenant uh, are uh, are by uh, are in human responsibility, are by obedience. Uh, there is, and we see this played out more in the covenant with Moses. But we see this, but we see this here in the sense that uh, the only way actually to maintain 
the land, if it will, the, the physical land itself uh, being uh, being the sign of the sign of God's adoption of His people and and uh, His uh, uh, and His keeping of them. The, the only way to keep this actually uh, is to honor the God of the covenant. Uh, once you begin to disobey Him, uh, then there are temporal judgments that will attend to that, and more particularly, ultimately, the final temporal judgment to that will be the casting out uh, completely of the land and giving it over. Uh, and thus we see uh, later in the Davidic dynasties as well. Um, I want to get to, and I know we're running out of time here, uh, I want to get to uh, really, I think, the uh, some of the uh, remarks he makes in terms of circumcision. And to back up just a minute, the second, the second covenant in, Gen- in Genesis 17 is enacted by circumcision. Uh, which is again a uh, a physical act, which is uh, which is enacted on every male member. Uh, the foreskin is is cut away, uh, and the foreskin there uh, not only in that day, but it was uh, again a, a a symbol of uh, of uncleanness, uh, and it was the first sign that God's people that are inhabiting the land are holy people. Uh, the uh, the first and initial act of a baby when they're what seven or eight years seven or eight days old is actually a, a human male that is is to actually cut off the foreskin. Uh, Paul uh, Paul draws draws the comparison or the analogy of this in in the in a letter to the Galatians and in his other letters uh, concerning concerning this and says it is a it is a useful symbol to remember if we remember the uncleanness of the foreskin. Uh, that's why the analogy he draws is uh, to circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. And I think that's very important for us to keep this distinction clear here uh, is because even though the symbol itself is no longer required, although uh, I will say even in the even in even in the time of my birth, and I don't know how it is these days, uh, that even though um, I was not Jewish, nor were my family anywhere near Jewish, uh, circumcision was a normal thing you did on, on male children for what they would call hygienic purposes and other thing else. It mm-hmm. certainly was not a sign of a covenant, nor have I ever taken it to be that. But however, in the nation of Israel, it, dis- it distinctly marked them as a holy people and was the first and evident mark that that was the case. Now, the... The other part of that, however, is that uh, who, uh, is that your children in your household were to receive the mark. The, ne- the next natural question is, well, then all of them are in the true sense. Uh, are all of them then in the true sense the children of Abraham? And of course, the excuse me. And of course, the uh, the uh, the obvious answer to that is no. Um, that there are many who received. Uh, the sign of circumcision uh, in uh, in uh, 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 in Abraham's covenant, uh, who were not, as we would say, looking forward to the covenant of grace. Uh, so, in that sense, then, if we're looking for the covenant of grace to over to override that, uh, then that would then that would be where they would fail. And we see this particularly, I think, uh, in Jesus' uh, conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and trying to make this very point. Uh, when their trump card always an argument with him is, well, we're children of Abraham. Uh, and then, of course, he says, in a true sense of the Abraham covenant, 
if you were children of Abraham, then you would listen to me. You would listen to God's words. Uh, and thus also we see this as well. I, I think uh, in, on 621, I think Beaky uh, in the second, second full paragraph there, he says circumcision was not a seal of justification for all of Abraham's offspring, for many of them lacked the patriarch's faith. Uh, as far as Abraham, I want us to then to go over to 622, and we'll we'll wrap up here with Abraham. But I think this gets to uh, I think this gets to the heart of um, the distinction between Reformed Baptists and our uh, brethren who uh, who practice infant baptism. Um, he says in the first full paragraph on 622, he says, uh, God's covenant grace with Abraham also served as a typological revelation of Christ and his future work. And there he talks about what we've just talked about here. The land of Canaan was a temporary home for the patriarchs as pilgrims. Um, but he says circumcision was also a type of, Christ, of salvation in Christ. Um he does. Uh, he he does mention uh, that uh, some would that some would say, uh, and I, I want to back up here to six twenty, uh, and I, I I blew over this thinking it was on six twenty three. But if you uh, the reader will go back to six twenty to the second paragraph there, I, I think this is where I want to make the distinction and then to and then to move on quickly if I can. Uh, first full paragraph, he says, given the two seeds of Abraham, some theologians have pr proposed that God made two distinct covenants with him. And here uh, he, uh, he cites Nehemiah Cox and, and uh, I think also uh, Jim Renahan and uh, uh, he, he cites other of our, of our reform, of our reformed Baptist um, forefathers or, and in Jim's case, our, our brethren. Um, and by that, we remember, as as Vance said, that uh, that in terms of reality, that there are, that there do seem to have been two covenants made there that are very important to understand in terms of its relationship to us. And there again, I think is the fifth, uh, Genesis fifteen and Genesis seventeen. Uh, Genesis fifteen is indeed uh, uh, God's distinguishing mark of of. Uh, of, uh, of uh, his distinguishing work whereby he takes the, the burden upon himself, takes the load upon himself and, and offers there uh, a, a covenant uh, which will redeem his, his people. The other Genesis 17 actually is the, uh, is the uh, covenant of circumcision and what that means. Uh, he goes on in the next sentence of 620 says, thus they distinguished God's promises of grace to Abraham from the covenant of circumcision linking to uh, link to keeping the law uh, he says however it is best to understand the scripture as revealing not two covenants with abraham uh, but one uh, and then he goes on there and this is really kind of a theme that he goes on saying and trying to balance uh the uh 15 and 17 uh what he would call the economy or the economia of the uh as Paul would call it, the economy or the administration of the covenant here is that we keep both of those in place. Um, and I think what this does, whether, and again, there's so much of this that by its very language would suggest that yes, Paul's, Paul's description of the of circumcision, particularly as it's related to, uh, um, 
to uh, to uh, to the to uh, Hagar and and uh, and uh, the the the, the uh, son of promise. Uh, there, I mean, he would say that that this is that this is a sign of uh, that circumcision is one that is in fulfillment of, of fifteen, in the sense that it is a mark of God's eternal covenant of grace. Uh, while at the same time, with the covenant, with the circumcision being a mark, uh, he would also, without much warrant that I can see, other than to saying <clears throat> the unifying nature of the two covenants, uh, to say that, okay, we do not have any clear indication that, yes, that there are those uh, that, and certainly not only in Abraham's time, but in subsequent generations after that in the in the land of Israel, there are those that bore the sign it was a sign it was a covenant sign of promise although it was not it was not salvific or it did not save those of itself who bore it and i think what he would say then is in relationship to that uh, if we bring that over and even if we take baptism as a uh, uh, if we take baptism as a replacement of circumcision in that sense then uh, it becomes baptism becomes not what we as Reformed Baptists would say is pictured in the watery grave of immersion in the water and in coming out to new life, but it is a but it is a sign of promise, and thereby I think is the liberty actually in being able to take that to equate circumcision with baptism, uh, and to take that as a modern day sign of promise whereby believers just as in the day of abraham uh, in the nation in the physical nation which god was uh, was keeping for his poster- for posterity there uh, just as in that physical nation this was an initiatory act so it is also in the christian life in the christian church as well is that christian parents will then uh, will then uh, baptize their children not suggestingly uh, in the manner in which we picture it as one of immersion, but as one of sprinkling, a sprinkling of promise, a sprinkling of water, as it's talked about of Moses. Uh, But there also that the, uh, that the covenant there enacted is, uh, is the covenant of Abraham, a covenant of faith, but it is the, it is the covenant of faith of his parents. And at that point, then having received the baptism uh, as the sign of circumcision, then it is understood then that there will be uh, a mixture, that there will be a mixture in the church of those who have baptized their children uh, and with the subsequent hope. And even as we, some of our uh, pedo-baptist friends, we know very well, we've heard them express this in the, in not only the hope, but also the expectation that God is going to save my child. My, my son or my daughter. It's going to save them because of the covenant promise of grace that God has given here. Uh, that, uh, that I think uh, we, see the, uh, we see the results of that. I think uh, in, uh, uh, certainly in many we see uh, and many we perhaps witness to uh, who have, whether it's a Presbyterian, it's a Lutheran, it's Catholic, uh, Methodist, whatever it is. And again, not picking on those denominations. That's not at all the, the, the intent here. 
but of seeing those who have received what they believe to be a covenant of promise uh, of their uh, uh, of their parents, but yet but yet have not have yet have not come to salvation in that way, uh, and so uh, to say that there is a covenant of grace which attends even to the Abrahamic covenant, uh, and to see it played out in these two way two equally important ways, uh, then I think is to miss the full transition. In other words. All of this, and I think Beaky would say this as well. All of this, in in agreement with our Reformed Baptist uh, brethren, uh, all of this culminates in Christ. That the that the covenant of grace is fulfilled in Christ. But yet, really, to take that and to read it back into this and to keep this practice uh, without actually understanding the clear teaching there is, I think, something uh, that is puzzling and sad. And it is a major difference that we have uh, that we have with our with our uh, uh, with our uh, uh, brethren that that in, that uh, baptize our children. And uh, it, it is uh, it, it is a, a sharp enough disagreement to where we can call that a sin in their camp. And of course, they according to their convictions, would say it's a sin that we don't baptize our own children as well. So we live with that tension there uh, with, again, 99% of the other things. Uh, as a friend of ours locally says, uh, I agree with you about 95% of the stuff. Uh, uh, and uh, and this would be the 5% where we don't. Well, I'm running out of time here, and I want to I jump over from that to the Mosaic Covenant and, and deal with that very briefly here. Uh, he says on 628, the Mosaic Covenant was primarily national in its orientation, dealing with Israel as a society. Uh, in that sense, then, we can also, and Beaky says, we can also see the, this being an administration of the Covenant of Grace as well, uh, in the sense that, uh, that, the, that, the covenant of, that the Covenant of the Law, Moses' Covenant, is not a republication of the Covenant of Works in the, in the strictest sense of the term. The reason he says that, and I'll 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 uh, I'll bow out after this. The reason he says that is uh, uh, that uh, uh, is that uh, the covenant of works, as it is uh, the covenant of, of Moses, as it's given to us, uh, is a fleshing out. We see in the law of Moses a fleshing out by God of what it means to be uh, to be uh, a covenant a covenant nation, and that is of Israel. And so in addition to circumcision, we see then the enaction of all these other uh, civil re regulations and things that mark them out from the other nations. Uh, and, and things and things also, many, many types, uh, such as the, the sacrifices, uh, the uh, officers of the temple, the, the, the priests and so forth, all of these are strong and convictional uh, and, and convictional uh, uh, indicators uh, of a covenant uh, that beyond this. Uh, and, and I love, and I, I don't know very quickly that I can that I can find this, um, but uh, and I don't want to spend a lot of time looking for this. Uh, but I think uh, I, I think that he. Um, uh, that he, he 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 talks about this in terms of a burden, and, and it was an interesting way that that Beaky put this, and I, I I guess I thought about it, but not really in the sense that he talks about here, uh, how that the sacrificial system was really a burden upon the people. 
Uh, and if you just, and if you just read the first five books and read Leviticus, uh, it is a burdensome. For one yeah. thing, they they have to they have to come up with the sacrifice. In other words, there's some shekels have to. Uh, they, there's there 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 are uh, not just livestock, but the choicest livestock coming out of their coming out of their own group, uh, coming out of their own flock. Uh, there are the choicest uh, of this uh, of these of these sacrifices going to God, and it's not just a once upon a time thing, as the writer of Hebrews says, but it's offered again and again and again. And as you get into the heart of Leviticus, what you see there, uh, with all the inaction of all the different types of sacrifices, some requiring blood, some not. Uh, uh, those those that are atonement for for sin, intentional and unintentional, bloody. Uh, those that are offerings of thanksgiving and so forth, or, or not. Uh, but all of those signify the fact that it is a a burdensome and a costly thing. And I think to distinguish this from uh, from the covenant of works, then I think this is a good way to do that because the covenant of works, if you try to use the law of Moses as a as a measure as the measure of righteousness that is of your own righteousness then indeed it is a covenant of works it will only result in death and thus the burden that it put upon you in terms of perpetual obedience and so forth without any without any view really to a means to overcome this then that indeed uh, is and, and that's exactly what we see in Jesus time in the case of the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, whereas uh, it is not a covenant of works if we see it in the sense that Christ himself bore the penalty. He took he, he enacted the law in, in all aspects perfectly upon himself and offered himself as the pure sacrificial lamb once upon a time to redeem not only his own people going forward of whom we would be in the church, but also uh, to also redeem those who look back who look forward to him by promise to the promise of to the promise given for thousands of years uh, through the through the uh, leaders and the prophets of one who was to come who would bear their sins and so there well, i think we see that and i will trust the uh uh will and mike actually to go on and try to lay this out in in better detail as as we go on here but that's that's kind of where we are with that well, Marvin, thank you so much, brother. <clears throat> that was so very helpful. What a what a wonderful explanation as you walked us through that. And uh, and as we turn it over, you know, to uh, to Will and Mike, you know, on their uh, respective chapters, you know, they're going to be talking about the actual uh, administration of the covenant right. of grace. And again, you know, we we look at that differently. Uh, we would not say that these Old Testament covenants are administrations of the covenant exactly. of grace, but we would say that uh, they are, uh, it's the covenant of grace revealed, it's the covenant it of grace announced, it's the covenant of grace promised and and even foreshadowed, uh, going all the way up to, uh, to the new covenant. And so... Yeah. Uh, we want to turn it over to Mike. Mike, if you'll start us off on that. And so you, you'll you take part of that as Beaky has that divided into two chapters. He starts talking about the administration of the covenant of grace. And even though we wouldn't use that term administration, we don't see that the covenant of grace is being administered in right. the these Old Testament covenants. 
we do still see many, many similarities in what these covenants were historically and in what they were doing uh, among the people during that perspective time in redemptive history. Uh, so, so Mike, brother, help us out with that. Walk us through this as you begin to talk about uh, from a Presbyterian point of view and summarizing Beaky, you know, the administration of the covenant of grace. Show us where, where we're sort of treading on the same ground together and maybe show us, you know, from time to time, maybe some differences that, that we might see there, brother. Okay, I, I will do my best. And where I, I missed something, I'm sure that the, the brothers will jump in and highlight that difference. But anyway, um, the uh, he starts out on the introduction. He starts out with the, uh, the he mentions the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants that anticipated God would raise up a king. And then he, he went into some history about Joshua led the people to inherit the land. And then God raised up judges, uh, and then he brought in Israel's first king. And, of course, that was Saul, and Saul proved to be, uh, 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 as he says, an object lesson and backsliding until the Lord rejected him, and he brought in David. And uh, he refers to David, uh, and just uh, kind of uh, summarize and jump ahead, uh, a, a servant king. Uh, you know, we've heard the term servant before, but a servant king, uh, 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 a servant to the Lord and a, and a king, a king to the, uh, a king, a representative to the people. Uh, so, um, and, and of course, then he made his everlasting, um, uh, an everlasting covenant with uh, David as well. And uh, he goes in and he starts laying out the biblical exposition of the uh, covenant kingdom. And he gives the historical background. Uh, and he mentioned and uh, in, in one, uh, the, the rest, uh, the key word was rest um, with the covenant, with God's covenant uh, that he, and an oath he swore to David. He, it's, uh, it appears in Psalms uh, and then uh, they reflected uh, where Psalms reflects on the historical count, historical counts that do not explicitly call God's promises to David a covenant, but uh, he, the historical background says when he has given him rest, that is dominance over his enemies. They may no longer uh, disturb the peace of the kingdom. Uh, so that that so with that rest, then uh, uh, God reminded David that uh, uh, that David said, "Okay, we're at rest now. So I want to build a, a a house for the Lord." And the Lord said, "No, I uh, I didn't ask you to build me a house." Um, and uh, you see, he. Uh, and he highlights a significant fact in this because man is not authorized to worship in any, any way other than the way God commands. And um, he reminded David of all his victories had come, come by God's sovereign grace. So um, he uh, turned uh, so much, pretty much turned the tables and promised to build David a house versus David building him a house that is a royal dynasty. Uh, so that uh, after God, after David died, God would establish forever uh, the kingdom of David's seed, uh, singular. The uh, royal son would build the house for, uh, for my name, the Lord said. So in the midst of all these promises, um, the Lord had, had promised to have a special relationship with David and the royal seed. Uh, and he highlighted uh, I, and the significance, I will be his father and he shall be my son. And the, uh, how the, the familiarity with similar statements, um, uh, I will be his father, he shall be my son, is similar to the formula, I will be your God and you shall be my people, implying a covenant between the divine father and the Davidic son. 
uh, and, and, uh, and the, uh, with the father and the David, Davidic son, the king and his king. So I, I, I thought that was pretty, uh, I, I like the way he said that, uh, uh, the king and his king. Uh, he said uh, on page 637, God thereby made the king the covenant representative of Israel, God's firstborn, excuse me, firstborn son. Um, and then uh, he goes into to, to two key words that were specifically used numerous times throughout the uh, what we see in, I guess, in, in Samuel. Uh, the two key words he uses uh, servant 12 times and house 14 times. And the, he stressed that the servant here refers to David in relation to God, uh, whom David addressed six times as Lord God or Master Jehovah. And then the covenant of the kingdom to find a Lord servant relationship between God and the house of David. Um, and then, of course, that also authorized David to rule as God's uh, rule, uh, God's people as his servant king. Uh, and then he goes into the uh, reflection on the covenant, the, the theological um, uh, reflections and um uh, we'll see what, okay, here he goes into the temporary, he uses the, we talked about the administration, he says the Lord used the, Dave, the, uh, the Davidic covenant to implement a temporary administration of the covenant of grace to provide for his people, though David and his seed. So through David and his seed, the Lord gave Israel, and then he highlights the things that God gave Israel um, through this uh, uh, temporary administration. Uh, a national salvation from the enemies, uh, justice in society, um, to, and that was in essence to protect the righteous poor, and then stability under God's love, greater revelation of true spirituality, and God's special presence secured in God's house. Um, so the covenant uh, was, I guess, not not a guess. The covenant was a topological revelation of the spiritual eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, that he, he highlighted. And one, I think for me, one important thing that he highlighted in this discussion on the, uh, on the uh, theological reflection, um, when believers went to the house of the Lord and observed rituals, they saw not only the building priests and sacrifices visible to the eyes, but by faith, they saw God's beauty, power, and glory, found spiritual satisfaction in his goodness and holiness and perceived the coming judgment. Uh, the, the part that I really thought was that, that really in all our worship, when we, when we come together for corporate worship or even even when when we're looking at uh, how we serve, you know, as a form of worship, uh, the seeing God's beauty, power and glory uh, and seeing uh, uh, satisfaction in his goodness and holiness. I mean, I, I, to me, that was just I mean, that's that's a, uh, to me a beautiful picture of how we should look when we, when we have come together uh, in, the, in the house of the Lord, uh, wherever we are and we come to worship. I mean, we should see that. She is, see his beauty, his power, his glory. I mean, and the spiritual satisfaction and renewing of heart and mind that we get from that. Amen. Um, I love that. Yeah. Um, so um, this covenant... Uh, Continued after God humbled the, the uh, David's throne, but it was shattered by the hand of the hand of the Babylonian uh, uh, 
Babylonians. Uh, there was, and then they, 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 and then they exiled the royal seed. But that covenant remained in in, in place. God hadn't forgotten that, and God empowered uh, Zerubbabel by the Spirit to rebuild the temple. And then the covenant continued uh, for the house of David. But the uh, you know the earthly uh, monarch monarchy had passed away. Had passed. Uh, had passed. Had passed. So. Uh, um, we, again, we're still in the kingdom and the David, and then uh, he moves in. Uh, I guess I want to get into the 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 uh, the, uh, the typological quality uh, that he speaks of David, the Davidic covenant on the different effects of the two seeds of Abraham. He 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 spent some time on that, and um, he said that uh, Abraham's uh, merely physical offspring enjoyed the covenant's physical and political blessings while their hearts remained uh, unconverted. And then uh, at the top of 641, he goes on, yet they're, mere, yet they're merely external worshipers viewed by the Psalms of David, which, which demanded nothing less than integrity and piety in the hearts and instructed sinners to seek forgiveness and cleansing by grace. And then the, the uh, so we see from the, the spiritual offspring of Abraham, the covenant of the kingdom and its fruits encouraged their hope and the greater son, David. So I, I think what Mark was saying is you, you had the, those that, that were the physical uh, through circumcision, the, the uh, physical sign, and then the spiritual. And, and here he highlights for the spiritual offspring that the, the covenant kingdom and its fruits were in their hope for, for David's greater son, the son of God. And, uh, then he then from that he moves into the new covenant through our Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, he uh, he mentions uh, uh, that the difference. Um, and and you know I'll be honest with you when I was reading this, I, I going back and from Van's introduction and Marvin's talk, the different uh, terminology used for the same thing, the overlapping of the different uh, how he describes the administrations. I mean, uh, if if you're not diagramming all this stuff, it can yeah. get it can get confusing and I, and I, so I may get a little mixed up here. So I will, I will say that up front, but I will do my best brothers. <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. It is. I mean, it is a, it is a tough thing to try to, to, to try to, I, I maybe this is too unkind of word to untangle this. Yeah. Uh, I think, be, be, because I think, I think, uh, I think Beaky really at the heart of it. I mean, he is in agreement with us. Just as Count John Calvin was, this is uh, John Calvin said on the face of it. You know, we ought to baptize believers, right? Uh, but but think, again, but but again, within the heritage where they are, and given the received wisdom they've had through the years, it, it's just yeah. And and, and Will Will is going to have the, the 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 great task of uh, unrolling the unity of this, and that's where right. really a lot of this is going to be displayed. Yeah, you know? and I I appreciate that point, Mike, about having to diagram this when you're reading if you're not familiar with 1689 federalism right and what particular baptists believe in general a, a perfunctory reading of this book you would generally agree with it like yeah. oh that makes sense yeah yeah but when you when you actually look at what the 1689 confession of faith says it gets to be convoluted um I think back to Sam Renahan's book, The Mystery of Christ, yeah. the Gospel in His Kingdom, that we went through last year. 
that yes. was really helpful in kind of giving me some alarm bells like wait a minute that's not exactly what we believe and then that the diagrams that are available in 1689federalism.com have been tremendously helpful going through these yeah. chapters yeah and, and uh vance noted him before but pascal pascal did know i uh, has a, a wonderful book on that and he has some helpful diagrams as well yeah but anyway yeah so i appreciate that so um, and I pulled out the book, but I mean, uh, with everything else going on uh, uh, at the last over the last couple of weeks, I, uh, I I didn't have time to do it. Uh, a lot I of hear you, bro. Stuff. I hear uh, you, brother. <laughs> you, Marvin, you know the schedule we've been. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I hear you. But, but anyway, uh, we, we we'll have several weeks to to unfold this. So yeah, but anyway, he uh, he taught me when he gets into the new covenant. Um, uh, he he highlights how it's the 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 climax of God's historical covenants. The fullest and final final revelation is is this covenant of grace um, that he says that we will receive in this age, the new covenant. And then he he highlights that Reformed theologians have sometimes used the term new, new covenant as a synonym for the covenant of grace, but in the Bible, the new covenant is a distinct historical historical administration of God's gracious purposes that follows the covenants with Abraham, Israel, and David. Um, and uh, then he goes into the exposition of the new covenant. And, you know, he also brings in, you know, I think we talked about this uh, on the previous podcast. Sometimes they, people call it the covenant of peace. Right. And in an everlasting covenant. So uh, um, when I look at this, uh, you know, it's, I, I go back, I think it was uh, two weeks ago when our, our earlier podcast, uh, as far as the covenant, of, uh, the covenant of grace, I mean, it, it was it's an eternal covenant and, and it was always in existence. But it, through his through biblical history, more and more uh, of it has been revealed to its culmination and the age that we are in today. Um, OK, so this covenant, uh, this uh, promised salvation for God's people by God's uh, people by God's Christ in the midst of God's judgment on Israel and the royal line. Uh, he highlights and it's uh, in that first uh, in the first part. He says God's servant, the, emb the embodiment of the covenant of the people will not only save Israel, but also God's salvation until the end of the earth. This is spiritual salvation, which God's people honored are honored as priests of the Lord who are clothed in garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness for the Lord will make an everlasting covenant with them. So, um, and then the, the, the promise also goes on. It, uh, it uh, consists in the everlasting gift of the spirit. So, I mean, he's got the covenant, the everlasting life, then the, 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 the gift of the spirit and the word to Christ, the seed uh, wow. Um, I want to skip parts, but let's see. I want to highlight the important things uh, given the time. I know. I mean, that's the that's, the, that's the tough part of this. Yeah. One thing that he highlighted um, on the uh, as far as how the covenant would be defined, he said it would be defined by his attributes of righteousness, justice, faithful love, and mercy. In fact, this, and he said in the Hebrew syntax, this can be used. For the and this the, the analogy of the groom and the bride, I, I, I and I don't know if we looked at that last podcast or not, but uh, he talks about the uh, where the, the groom paying the the bride price, 
And he said, God, and this is the top of page 644, God, not his people, was the one who would pay the price to enter into a new covenant between himself and his disgraced bride. So, I mean, uh, the, so uh, the groom would pay the by price. Christ paid the price for the church. And, I, and then I, I like how he, he went into the history of the, of the church. Uh, and, and here he said he called it uh, a covenant between himself and his disgraced bride. So uh, it, it reminded me of, of, of uh, previous things uh, of the uh, unfaithful wife. And, the, and we read about in the, um, in the, uh, in the, in the, in God's word. Um, uh, and the, again, the new covenant, he uh, contains promises uh, that he would, uh, and, and contrast to if you will. And so here's some of the promise, uh, the stance on um, God's, God's unira, uh, where God said, uh, if you will, of the mosaic, stand on God's unit, I will. There was an inward uh, covenant faithfulness. I will put their laws in their hearts and their inward parts and write it on their hearts. There was a covenantal union and communion. I will be their God and they will be my people. Uh, again, I highlighted earlier the significance of that, uh, indicating a, a, a that kind of indicates a relation. Uh, I will be their God and they will be my people. If they do this, I will do this. I will be their... So, I mean, it, it, again, it, it implies a, an agreement, a legal agreement uh, between the two parties. Uh, atonement for uh, sins, guilt, complete atonement of guilt that, so that the offender, so that the uh, sinner is ultimate, uh, is utterly forgiven. Uh, there is no, uh, all sin is, is forgiven. And, um, and the, the new covenant also uh, uh, abolished uh, the ceremonial law and sacrifices and the replacement of the, uh, 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 the priesthood uh, or, or the uh, Aaronic priesthood, Aaron, Aaron's priesthoods uh, the, with a perfect priest. And Marvin, one thing I liked how you highlighted in towards the end of your discussion, you mentioned all the, the rituals and the sacrifices. But one yeah. thing also, too, that was amazing to me is the, 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 the purification process of the individuals exactly. uh, performing as well as those coming as well. You know, uh, what's clean and what's unclean. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it, and it was continuous. I mean, it's like. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a um, bloody it's a bloody mess. Yeah. I, 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 I'll, oftentimes when I read Leviticus, I, I try to place myself there. Uh, and there, the, the stench of death is everywhere. Blood is flowing. Uh, you have the cries of wounded animals. I mean, it's just a real yeah. visible and audible sign of the misery of sin. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, uh, with the new covenant, um, on the, on reflecting on this, the new covenant defines membership in God's new covenant community, according to an inward keeping inward law keeping and knowledge of God, not an outward ritual. So, I mean, it's all about the, the heart, the circumcision of the heart. Um, and, and it, uh, it, and with this, it, uh, with this covenant, it opened the door, not just for the, for Jews, but for all, for, for the Gentiles as well. Um, and then he goes in, how should we compare the old covenant and the new covenant? And then the, uh, he goes into a discussion, uh, 
he, uh, he said, narrowly speaking, the old covenant covenant of the law made with Israel through Moses. Uh, however, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt as fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham. He made the covenant of law at Mount Sinai. Therefore, the old and our first covenant broadly includes all what we call today the Old Testament. And then he goes into the differences. And he said, Christ is embodied in the new covenant. The new covenant consists of the following. And again, this is, you know, we need to... Uh, a greater revelation of God's saving grace, the substance of the outward shadows given under the old covenant, a boldness to draw near to God, and a transformed people who enjoy a real spiritual, real spiritual union and community with God. Uh, he highlights, and I think uh, the key thing to remember when we look at this, this the, the new covenant and what he what he gives us is that the, the the cost of it, what 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 is you know what it what it costs what it costs God uh, to you know the the sacrifice of his, his son, his, uh, on the cross and what, what Christ did for us. I mean, that's what we need to remember. I mean, that, yeah. that's the cost, the cost, what was the cost of the new covenant? Right. And it, it, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I think Jonathan Edwards and Andrew Fuller, uh, put it so well when they say the cost, is, it, it is of infinite worth. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, that kind of, uh, that's my summary of the chapter, and I, I, I hope I did it justice. But any any comments you brothers could add, I would appreciate it. Mike did well considering the constrictors of time, and I know For we're sure. all we we all feel kind of constrained by that. But uh, uh, it, will unless you have some more comments on it, we want to give you as much time as you can, and we want to turn over the next section to you. I mean, we've stopped looking at the diverse administrations, and now we want to go to you to kind of, uh, uh, as he says, the essential unity of God's covenant of grace. Right. And, and here again, I mean, we're going to flesh out some very delicate things. And so uh, yeah. I, I think you're going to be tying up some some threads here that that uh, Mike and I have laid out in our chapter. So we'll go ahead, brother. So first, I want to outline what Beaky's argument is for the essential unity of God's covenant of grace through the Old Testament. Then what I'd like to do is really just encourage people who are listening to when you're going through something like this for, well, first, let me do this. When you're going through um, this covenant theology, there's a lot of terms being thrown around and it's important to understand the definitions. First, yeah. like what is a covenant? Right. Second, covenant of works. What does that mean? And it's actually being used in two different ways here. There's, was the covenant of works that you see um, through the federal headship of Adam um, that we believe in, and then the a covenant of works, which is a covenant that requires the participant, the subservient party to the covenant to do something. For instance, with the Abrahamic covenant, you know, the requirement that of circumcision with, with um, the Mosaic covenant, the requirement to obey God's laws. Um, these are, works-based covenants, but they're not, they're distinguished from the covenant of works that you're going to hear throughout these chapters and through our discussions. Yeah, I think so, that's an important point. And I, I think that when, especially somebody who's not a theologian like myself, when, when even when I'm, I've heard these definitions before, and then I'm going through this, and then I start to get lost a little bit, and I have to kind of go back, stop and go back and, and remind myself what these terms mean. Another one is, you know, what is the covenant of grace? Um, what is a covenant of redemption? Those kinds of things. And so 
when you're going through these, especially when you're trying to understand what his argument is, it's important to understand terms because then you're not getting lost and you're not getting uh, in, in terminology and you're able to understand what he's trying to tell us. And then you're able to understand what the 1689 federalism teaches and, and, and what um, particular Baptists generally view differently. Um, I will say when you, you read this, when you hear this, it's not something that to me... And I'm, I'm curious what you all think. Um, after I outline this, what I'd like to ask is once I outline his, he's got basically um, six points or seven, excuse me, seven points about his argument as to why it's essentially the Old Testament covenants are essentially uh, the covenant of grace. And um, what I'd like to hear from you all is what level of when we're talking about theological triage you know essentials things that would divide a church things that you can just disagree on but still stay in the same church as other people what level would this dispute fall on so the first point that he talks about for the covenant of grace is that um they argued that and this is all coming from pages 656 through 658 it says, first, we argue that God had been saving sinners by the same gospel since the fall of man. God embedded this gospel in the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, and David, and brought its full revelation with the arrival of Jesus Christ and the inauguration of the new covenant. And what he's referring to there is the promise to Eve in the garden that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Uh, and then secondly, God promised the gift of salvation in Christ in a covenant made before time began. And this is what, and this is another term, the Council of Peace. The Council yeah. of Peace is between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what yeah. they're talking about in this Council of Peace. It says the persons of the Trinity committed themselves to execute the plan of salvation for God's chosen people through the mediation of Christ. Uh, third, the third argument is that the ancient covenants of promise, law, and kingdom all served a twofold function to so implement temporary administrations of God's saving grace and to give typological revelations of that grace, culminating in the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood. Fourth, they add a, what he calls a polemical argument, which I had to look up that word. That just means a, um, a harsh critique. A harsh critique that dispensationalism breaks the repeated promise fulfillment pattern where the New Testament cites the old. Peter argues from God's promise that David's descendant would have reigned on David's throne to its fulfillment in Christ's resurrection, ascension, and session at God's right hand. Uh, the, and then the fifth argument that he makes is there is at least one promise central to all of the redemptive covenants, one core promise that they all share in common, a covenant. And here he defines what a covenant is. So he says a covenant is a solemn promise that functions as a legal instrument to define a relationship of loyalty. What I think is interesting here, though, is Beaky leaves out that there's distinctions in requirements of that covenant. So yeah, the yeah. promise is in the Old Testament covenants, if you do this, then I will do that. So circumcision being a requirement with the Abrahamic covenant, following God's law. If you follow my laws, then you will be my people. I will set you apart as a kingdom of priests and um, a kingdom of priests holy unto me. So, so what he's leaving out in this definition is the terms of the covenant and the terms of the covenant actually matter. Um, so I, I feel like that 
throwing that definition in there is a bit disingenuous because he's what he's trying to make the argument here is that the one essential promise to all of redemptive covenants is that he will be their God and they will be his people. That's his that's his argument as to what the central promise is. And that's why he's saying it's a covenant of grace. But he's what he's leaving out is that it's not grace. It's, hey, you need to do this in order for you to be my people. Um, so he's right in one part that a covenant is a solemn promise that functions as a legal instrument to define a relationship of loyalty. But what he's leaving out is that that promise is predicated on terms of, of fulfillment. And in the covenant of in the Old Testament covenants, what you see is a essentially different manifestations of of covenants of works, not the covenant of works, which is the what God and between God and Adam and the federal headship that Adam had. But they were requirements to for for the people subject to the covenant meaning the, and this is kind of where my contracts law class kind of helped me out in understanding this. You have two parties to a, a contract, right? And it's the same thing, two parties to a covenant. You have God and his people. And there's a condition, there's promise. If you do this, then I will do that. And so it requires the people to do something. Mm -hmm. And that requirement for the people to do something is a, a type of works. And what he's arguing here is that this when he goes back on, on point number three, they serve a twofold function. I would agree with that, but I would disagree with what those twofold functions were. He says the twofold functions were to implement temporary administrations of God's saving grace and to give typolo typological revelations of that grace culminating in the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood. Mm -hmm. Where I disagree is I agree that there's a twofold function, and one of those is a typological function of God's saving grace. And that's where he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's, yeah. that's pointing to the promise, but that's not the promise itself. I, I, these are a type of setting apart a people for himself. That's a type. I agree with that. A type that shows us point to points to the new covenant of grace that we see in Christ, but it is not itself a covenant of grace. The, where I disagree with him is that it's a temporary administration of God's saving grace. I disagree with that. I think that these are temporary administrations where that are for temporal fulfillment, because what you see here is a promise of land, a promise of prosperity, like you will be my people. I will bless you in the land. You know, you'll see you see that all throughout the New Testament or the Old Testament. And it's about this national Israel. So in one sense, it was God saying, if you do this, you will be temporally blessed. You will temporally get this land. But if you don't do it, I'm going to take that land from you. And we see that they don't do it. And he takes the land from. Them. Mm -hmm. So that's where I would say they're they're They serve a twofold purpose, but they're not. But neither of those are in and of themselves salvific. I wholeheartedly agree with Mike. And I really appreciate you talking about this. What what questions come up with you reading this is, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved then? If they're not saved by keeping these covenants, how were they saved? What was the church? What did the Old Testament church look like? And the Old Testament church looked like those people who saw the sacrifices, they saw the laws as a means to get to God, not in and of themselves, but pointing to the salvific promise from the garden, the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and how God was fulfilling that promise in time 
and that God would do that. And you see that in the New Testament when you see, you hear about Abraham's faith in the promise, right? And that's where I would distinguish this. And I think it's important to see, okay, so he's saying here, or at least this is what it looks like he's saying, is that these Old Testament covenants served a temporary uh, administration of God's saving grace. I would disagree with that. I think that's wrong. What they are, though, is is revealing duty and revealing our inability. And ultimately, you see that because even in Moses and Deuteronomy is telling them, if you follow God's laws, if you write them on your doorposts and you teach them to your children, then you will be blessed from generations to generations. But if you don't, then you will lose the inheritance that God has promised you and you will end up in captivity. And he's even kind of prophesying at the end of Deuteronomy what's going to happen to the nation of Israel later on. And what it's showing us is God's holiness, his standard of righteousness, what it takes to to be with him. And at the same time, it's showing us our inability to do it. And that's really what these Old Testament covenants teach us. Um, so I, I'm not sure where I left off. So six, it the sixth point he has is an examination of each covenant shows that it's rooted in any covenant previous to it sustains their basic commitments and advances their fulfillment. I would agree with that, but I think it's a different, again, it's a different thing. It's not salvific in and of itself, but it's pointing to the salvation that we have in the new covenant through Christ. Seventh, though, though the Bible sometimes uses plural covenants, it also can use a single term covenant or oath to refer to more than one historical covenant. Therefore, we have biblical warrant to speak of one covenant of grace. I don't. I think that's a correlation and not causation type thing. Just because they they refer they refer to Old Testament covenants sometimes in the plural and sometimes in the singular does not justify us in thinking that the covenant of grace is all of them. Because there's a distinction when we talked about what a covenant was and what the covenants, um, what the covenants required is is a promise and fulfillment of two parties, mm -hmm. right? In the Old Testament, it was the people of God to fulfill the, the requirements that God had for them in order for them to be his people. But he'd also set them apart. And you see here in the new covenant, there's only one covenant. And, and that's like a covenant between God and Christ, where God sends Christ to redeem us from our sins. And then Christ and, his, and God and his people, all you have to do is look and believe. And that's that's distinguished from the covenant of works. So I, I would disagree with them there that just because they were I would agree that they're all one general covenant where God is trying to reveal to people their duty and at the same time their inability in different manifestations. I would distinguish that from the covenant of grace, because that covenant only requires us to look and believe and not do anything else. It's, there's no condition proceeding upon us to do anything temporally to gain God's favor. We don't have to circumcise ourselves. We don't have to be baptized in order to believe or to have faith. That's a that's a symbol of what we do because of our faith. We, we are not subject to works. It's by grace that we're saved. And that grace is through faith in Christ. The, the, the duty, the works were completed with Christ on the cross. The things we were unable to do, Christ did on the cross. Christ kept the perfect law. Christ was the circumcised. Christ was... Every, every requirement the people had in the Old Testament, Christ fulfilled for us so that we wouldn't have to. And so 
that's where I would that's where I would disagree with Beaky here. Um, so he talks about this core promise, their God, his people. And I agree with him that that is a, a, a thread that goes throughout all the Old Testament promise, uh, all the Old Testament covenants, co- excuse me, covenants. But again, what that's doing is that's fulfilling those two purposes, right? One of the purposes is temporal with the people. The second is pointing to something. God, throughout, throughout the history of humanity, since the fall of Adam, has been reuniting himself with his people. And that I would agree with wholeheartedly, yes and amen. But that doesn't mean that it's one covenant. That means because what, what we see here, again, and this is, this is the danger in saying that it's one covenant, is to say that these people were saved by their works in the Old Testament. And that's not true. They weren't saved by their old works. They were saved by the faith and the promise. Um, so one thing I would really recommend to people. So I, I'm sorry, I asked a question at the end of that. So when you hear when you hear this, um, these seven arguments as to why it's essential, it's essentially one covenant of grace. And hopefully I did a good job in, in explaining why we disagree with that. Um, I'm curious as to what you think as far as what level of theological triage should we put this on? Well, I'm. It depends on who you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, I have some friends that say it's, it's a, it's a, it's a top shelf. I mean, it's a, it's a fundamental thing. Uh, wow, so, they, so some friends would believe then that if you don't believe, if you believe that it's a, it's all a covenant of grace, then you're not a believer. No, 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 not, 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 not to that not, extent. Not that top think. shelf. <laughs> not, not that top shelf. No, so no. Like but, second tier then. Well, yeah, but but again, uh, well, and 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 let's let's just talk about this in, in our own church. I mean, it, it is it is a uh, it is a um, uh, it, it is an idea uh, that we are trying to implement within the church in terms of our relationship to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, both of those are predicated upon the understanding uh, that the covenant of grace essentially is the new covenant uh that everything back everything back is looking forward to that i i I think you i think you identified a a helpful solution uh, distinction there um and and one i think that it unless we approach it carefully i think is 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 unhelpful and that is this idea of administrations for right. one thing, or, or or covenant or uh, uh, dispensations, actually, he uses it. Which again, I mean, we all get our in- antenna when we hear right, dispensations. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but again, I mean, the idea there is that within that particular dispensation or that particular administration, that there is, will as you said, a dual a dual function or a dual purpose going there. And, and I think uh, if you go back to the previous chapter thirty um, or the, my chapter on thirty one. I think you see this, and I think he begins to to flesh this out in in the Abrahamic covenant, uh, and one, and and I don't think he ever successfully ties them together, it's because, again, to use the text itself, there's Genesis 15 and there's Genesis 17. There's Genesis 15, the unconditional covenant that God makes. He walks right. between the parts. Genesis 17 is the uh, is the temporal uh, is the temporal covenant covenant whereby he promises a land to his people uh, and mm-hmm. promises that uh, that population will be more numerous than the stars of the sea uh, stars of the sky 
uh, which again indicates that it's eternal and or it's uh, it's timeless, is timeless in its in, in its uh, in its uh, aspect or, or nature there. And, and I think in that uh, when he talks about administration, I think he's talking about that second order of things very often. Right. Uh, that, that that is as the story is progressed, and we would agree with that. The story is being progressed. I think, uh, and Will, I think he made an important point in terms of trying to collapse his point in terms of covenants, covenants, plural, into covenant, because I, I do think that is a reading a reading back into the text. Uh, we have the advantage of having the New Covenant, having the New Testament, and seeing uh, just as uh, those dudes that were walking on the... Uh, uh, on the road with uh, Jesus uh, after his re- after his resurrection, uh, when all these things were unfolded to them, I mean, we have the benefit of, of seeing that, and certainly Peter and the apostles did as well. Uh, but going back and collapsing that into a single covenant, mm-hmm. I think I don't know that their intention is to do this, uh, but I think it does give them the framework within which they can uh, within which they can say. Uh, that that conditional framework uh, works in the new covenant or works in the new in the new testament uh, to the, uh, in a similar sense to the way it did in the old co- in the old covenant. Uh, that is that there will be uh, there will be a, a mixed there will be a mixed generation a mixed population. Uh, in other words, you, you will baptize a lot of children probably, and I think that's fair to say. Uh, that will never make a profession of faith uh, in Christ, and mm. as such, what you have is you have you have re- you have regenerate you have regenerate member or no not regenerate, but you have regenerate. those. Yeah, you have a problem there, and again, yeah. it showed itself. It showed itself with a halfway covenant with uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards and his granddaddy Solomon Stoddard. In fact, it basically was the root of uh, of a lot of trouble that Edwards had in terms of his ministry as well. Uh, but uh, again, I mean, to that degree, then I think I think it becomes ecclesiologically, or even in terms of polity, I think it becomes a huge problem, and one that we're trying to address in our church, in the sense that those that would adopt, and again, we want to be kind to Beaky and understand that I think what we're all saying here, all four of us are saying, is Beaky on one level is saying what we believe. On the other yeah. hand, however, mm-hmm. in terms of the administration of it, if you want to use that term, uh, the way it the way it shakes out, uh, that it is that it is that it is very uh, is very it's different in a very important sense. Um, and so, as Baptists, what we're saying is the New Covenant says that baptism or that membership or inclusion in the body of Christ as evidenced by local congregations. And I don't know how you read the New Testament other than that, uh, to, to, to assume a universal church, uh, which in a sense, some, uh, which in a sense is, is kind of what the Abrahamic covenant does. I mean, it assumes a universal sense in that church, but as we get to the New Testament, what we find is a, is a, is a very clearly defined universal church, which is always instantiated in a local church. Mm-hmm. And at redeeming grace, what we have here is that fundamental that fundamental application of the new covenant in the sense that that must be the standard that we apply whenever we by covenant bring ourselves together 
we agree that those that will enter into our midst are those who who give a who give a credible and a visible sign of regeneration, uh, and and by and by that we also mark the fact that they have done this in obedience to the command of Christ to be baptized. So not before, but after. Yes, right. I, you know, I would I I think it this for me. So when I think of theological triage, there's the this these central essential issues where if you don't believe them, I don't think you can consider yourself a believer. Then you have tier two, which is you're a believer, but I don't we because of the practicality of the differences, we just can't do church together. And I think like a lot of that would be essentially the the Pato Baptist versus Credo yeah. Baptist thing. Well, and oh, then, well, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Look. And then you have the tertiary or the the level three level of triage, where it's like these are convictions, but they're not such that it it divides us as a body of christ like or a body a, a visible body of christ in the church so like we can agree, like for instance you have post-millennial views on eschatology and amillennial views on eschatology and they can function in the same church because it doesn't it doesn't change what we agree on as far as how we do church and i think where this falls is somewhere between level two and level three for me yeah i i, I think so and i think again returning to the example of our own church. I, I think this is, I think this, this is a real question and, and Van and Mike uh, will, uh, I think will concur with this. We are having a really difficult time explaining to people <laughs> that if we invite members of our church uh, and, and put the, and put the circle or the fencing, if you will, around the members of our church, in terms of observing the Lord's Supper together, that we are in the sense that a couple of people have asked this question. Well, does that mean that if R.C. Sproul or if John Calvin came and sat in your congregation, you would not serve them the Lord's Supper? As if this is a sign. As if this is a sign of uh, uh, of uh, uh, of uh, of indirectly actually saying, okay, uh, you are not a Christian. When again, I mean, we explain that differently, but, uh, but again, that's not the judgment there at all. Uh, and again, that goes to the heart of the new covenant that goes to the heart of our commitment to a regenerate church membership. Now that's not to say that RC and, and, uh, and Calvin, uh, we don't consider to be unregenerate. As a matter of fact, quite the contrary, uh, they, they, they showed many signs of regeneration. But all we can do in our church is to is to be concerned about our own flock, right? Uh, and, and and the primary emphasis. And again, I mean, this is something that this is something that again and again we're teaching and teaching and teaching. And I, I think it might be one of those things like Jesus with his disciples. I mean, it may be yeah. a huge revelatory event that actually makes all this plain to them. Yeah. But but what we're trying to what we're trying to advance is as you look at the administration of uh, as you look at the administration of the Lord's Supper and, and baptism in a more stark sense, and uh, I, I'll leave that aside, but if you look at the administration of the Lord's Supper, you see that it is indeed between a believer in Christ, but you never really see a practical illustration or a practical implementation of that in a local church other than the church at Corinth, where there were being abuses of the supper. 
Right. And I think, and I know in your group, Will, we talked about that when we, when we went through this, uh, but that's so important is to understand that the abuses that Paul was laying out there were not for the universal church, nor was I think it in view. There may have been some people from outside the church that were sitting and, and eating with them. It could be. But what his, his, his point to there was the discipline of the church at Corinth. He didn't have concern about anything else at that point. This is not a sign of you and Jesus having a good relationship or of you in that solitary moment, the stovepipe moment, as I call it, where you're enjoying communion with Christ. This is a part of not only that, but there's also the horizontal dimension, which is equally important, where it is the opportunity you to join into fellowship, but you cannot also, by the abuse of it, dis, uh, break the fellowship of your community. Yeah. Um, real quick before we go, because I know our time is running very short. Um, the I'd like to go over his practical applications because, again, I find these so helpful. And then I'd like to recommend some resources. Um, and here I'll say this. So he goes on to say um, there's the practical significance of the unity of, of God's covenant of grace. I would <laughs> it's funny. But I, I would actually agree with all of these in, the, in, in a sense as to when you think of covenant theology in general, what that should do for you on a practical level. Mm-hmm. And number one, he says it's a Christ-centered method of interpreting the Bible. And it says that the doctrine of the covenant of grace teaches us that the Bible is governed by a pattern of promise and fulfillment. Christ is the center of history. All of the Old Testament looks forward to him, and the New Testament reveals how he fulfilled the ancient promises and applies them by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, whatever portion of the Holy Scriptures we are reading, we should view it as part of a great wheel of truth where all the the spokes converge on Christ. Though not every sentence is specifically about Christ, we should always ask, how does this text help to reveal our need for Christ and Christ's sufficiency to save us to the glory of God? I would agree with that yes and amen. Like. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. With the with the distinction that we view these covenants pointing to the covenant of grace and not being in and of themselves a covenant of grace, um, that 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 should be absolutely how we interpret the Bible. When we look throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures, they all point to Christ, but they but they don't do what we don't believe they point to Christ in the same way that Beaky's arguing. Um, Two is the careful use of typology. Again, we, we discussed that. That's true. When you're reading Old Testament scriptures and Old Testament covenants and prophecies, it's an, it's understand it's important to understand that these are a type of thing and not the thing itself. And that's really helpful when you're when you are going through Old Testament scriptures. When you have a covenant theology framework, it's a type that points to Christ. It's not the thing itself. And I think that's where dispensationalism breaks down. Three, the profit of studying all scripture. And again, that's huge. If, if somebody's listening to this podcast and they have not just gone through the Bible in a year or cover to cover, you don't have to do it necessarily in a year, but just dedicate yourself to reading God's word from beginning to end. It's going to be enormously helpful for you to see the meta narrative, as my friend Mr. Booth likes to call it, the meta narrative of scripture. And how all of scripture points to Christ. You see, there's a one general story being told, and that's God redeeming a people for himself. Um, 
Four, the importance of knowing the Bible as a whole. Again, that's I think that's kind of restating number three, but it, it's true. <clears throat> Five, the necessity of reading each text in its covenantal context. And that that's really important. It's really helpful to understand what was this particular people going through? What was that covenant telling them at that particular time? But also when we're looking at this in our covenantal context, understanding that it's different from theirs and then and then asking ourselves, in light of those differences, how do we in, in our covenantal context view this and how are we what commands are we still called to obey in light of those ones? That's really helpful. <clears throat> Six, the application of each text according to our present covenantal context. Okay, so I just covered that. And then seven, the indispensability of faith and obedience. That's so true. There's there's a obedience that's required in the Old Testament, and you see that through revealed through these Old Testament covenants. You need to do this. You need to keep this law, and then you just see the people of Israel repeatedly failing over and over and over again. But that's why you have that prophecy of I will remove the heart of stone from their hearts and put in the heart of flesh, so that they will keep my commands. Faith should lead to obedience. And it's not faith apart from obedience. It's not obedience that leads to faith or faith because of obedience, but faith should lead to obedience. And that's something that you can get a practical consideration of when you look at covenant theology. So these are really helpful in spite of our disagreement with him about what the unity of God's covenant of grace is. Um, I still think his practical applications are enormously helpful for God's people. Um, the last thing I'll recommend is when you look at 1689federalism.com, what's, I was saying this earlier, what's really helpful is, one, the videos are pretty helpful, although they can be, you, you have James Ranahan and Sam Ranahan and Richard Barcelos on, on some of these videos, and they can use language that's even over my head. Yeah, and Moses so, and Elijah, yeah. Yeah, so I have to. <laughs> I have to like pause it, look up terms and all these things. But what's also really helpful, it was still helpful. And But what's also really helpful is they have these diagrams on there that are really great. Because mm -hmm. I'm going through this and going, okay, how, I'm trying to get a picture in my mind of how we view these covenants. And there's a really good diagram on there that distinguishes the covenant of works for the covenant of grace, how it's all subsumed under the Noahic covenant, and then how the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant are are kind of like a bridge between the covenant of works to the covenant of grace. And then you have the Davidic covenant subsumed under all of it. It's really helpful to see that. And it, there's an explanation on it on the side. And then there's other diagrams that kind of show us the similarities and differences that we have with dispensationalists, with new covenant theology and with um, Presbyterians. Mm -hmm. So I'd highly recommend that to anybody that's listening, but that's all I've got for the essential unity of God's covenant of grace. Very good. Well, guys, thank y'all so much. I know uh, we're running out of time and we really need to conclude very quickly, but I just want to say thank you for your, your, your diligence and looking into this and really sort of uh, threading this thing in, in such a wonderful way. Uh, y'all were so, uh, uh, you know, uh, had good edifying remarks. I believe it was really a sort of an ironic discussion between, you know, you interacting with Beaky and then interacting with Reformed Baptist Covenant Theology. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. We love our brothers, our Presbyterian brothers. We, uh, like you said, Marvin, 99% yeah. or 95%. I mean, we're, we're right together and we're right on track. And, uh, 
And so we thank the but Lord. But also to say that uh, it's not that that other 5% is not important. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One thing just real quick, I want to point out just sort of a nuanced type thing is I just want to bring up the subject of, of, of Catholicity, small C Catholicity. Right. You know, when, Will, when you were talking about how uh, these doctrines sort of divide, uh, I just want to, to, to make the uh, distinction that it is at a local church level. Uh, you, uh, one of the phrases you said is you said, you know, we can't do church together. And so, and that, <clears throat> that is a distinction on how, uh, we do function as far as our, our church distinctives, but, but rising to a level of, of Catholicity where we can work together as believers and Christians, there are so many things that we can do together. And, and we, yeah, we've, we've had, Presbyterians speak in our pulpit. Uh, we would be willing to engage in some type of uh, uh, probably Christian missions with them in, 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 a, in an area. So there, there are things that we would do together. So it's not a, a complete or, or such a great divide that we could never work together for the cause of the gospel itself. But when it does come down into our church polity and our church practice and different things like that, yeah, these these doctrinal distinctives are such that, that uh, they do form a divide in the practicality of us being and coexisting in one single church together because of the differences of what we see concerning covenant theology and baptism and even you know the doctrine of the church itself. And so I just wanted to just bring that out real quick before we uh, before we concluded today. So, with that being the case, thank you, brothers, so much, and may the Lord bless you. And as we go out today, uh, may we seek to glorify Him in all things. Y'all have a great day. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.